Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you. You ready to get into God's word? All right, let's take out the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door, and I will draw your attention to the fill in the blank. We are in part 66 of our Being Jesus series, and I entitled this morning's message, Sweet Lavish Love, and we're going to talk about a pretty famous story, right? The famous story about Mary anointing Jesus. Remember the whole breaking the perfume, that story? Well, we're going to kind of go through that. And it's not a very big passage, so we're going to go through it a little bit slower together today. But I want to kind of begin with a question. The question is this. Can you love an invisible God? Uh, We have conferences, weekends away, stuff like that, just to love our spouses. Right? And you can see them. And you say, yeah, but they're less irritating than God. Are you sure about that, right? Can you love an invisible God? I mean, if you can't see him, you can't hear him, it doesn't seem like you can touch him. How are you supposed to love an invisible God? You know, I do think that the regular Christian life is way deeper than we're living. I think that... The regular Christian life, as I continue to share with you, I believe that is a whole lot of, it's much more interactive, it's much more intimate, it's much, I think that there's a lot more to the regular Christian life than we are living. I think that would help out a lot. But what would it look like to be in absolute love and devotion to God? Well, I guess what would it look like to love anyone. I mean, how do you, how do you define out whether you love somebody? I mean, we could observe different couples and we could make certain judgments, right? Oh, that couple doesn't talk very much. Oh, they must be disconnected. Well, what if they know each other so well, they don't feel the need to constantly talk about it. Uh, we look at other couples. Oh, they don't seem to be very touchy there's there's no they're not holding hands or not that maybe we can make a judgment about them that there's no intimacy what if that's not their style of personality in the same way we kind of make a lot of judgments about one another in terms of our devotion to god right which is kind of like well you know well that person they seem all in because they got their hands up and and you know i don't really do that thing maybe i don't love them as much as they do Mm, that's hard, yeah? Uh, there's other folks that are, you know, man, it seems like they're an amener and they're not and they're, they're doing this and they're doing that and, and maybe I'm, we're always judging ourselves and judging other people based on what we see. Here's the caution that I want to kind of exhibit for today because when you read a story about a woman that goes all in for Jesus, it makes you feel a little bit like, I don't know if I would do that. And then you carry a little bit of guilt and shame because you're going, man, I, maybe I'm not like that. I mean, we're highlighting her as the hero, but that's not really me. And I don't, okay, let me make something incredibly clear. I believe that God wants you to engage with him, be in love with him, and be abandoned in him in the manner in which he designed you. Now, let me, let me explain kind of what that means. Let's talk about the worship song part, yeah? You know, we get into that. We just sang a bunch of songs of Jesus. And, and, and know that in that time, there were two massive dynamics occurring. One is far more important than the other. The most important dynamic 
that is occurring in that time is it's supposed to be date time between you and God. It's supposed to be sometimes a corporate date time with God. Sometimes it's us just lifting up a praise to him or, or, or glory to him, kind of as a group, yeah? The most important thing is that your heart is engaged in that moment, okay? Now, I don't care what it looks like on the outside. Here's, and I've shared this a million times in the past, so if you're new, you're the only ones interested in what I'm about to say. The way that I picture the song portion of the service is that I don't believe that God is particularly tracking on the music style. I don't, I certainly know he's not tracking on the quality of singing. (laughs) However, here's what I think he's tracking on. What I think he's tracking on is he's looking at heart monitors. And I think that heart monitors can go from white cold to red hot. And I think that as he scans the whole place, whether or not the, our congregation is red hot together, I think that it's not, he's not looking at the posture. He doesn't care about the posture. He's not interested in the outward. He's looking as to whether or not you're fully engaged with him. However you do that, I want you to do that, right? Because, for example, The secondary thing that's going on in our environment is called church culture. Church culture is shaping you. You don't, you don't notice it very much, but it's similar to peer pressure. Okay. So let's, let's use the amen style real quick for a moment. There are some preachers that we bring in here and they get all the amens. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, if I bring in Parnell, he gets all my amens for a year. Now let me tell you, let me tell you why on this. It's a culture thing. So for example, uh, there are a big pocket of ameners in this church. There is, there's like a, I mean, we'll cut out maybe one third of the entire place that you'd be like, amen at all times. But what happened was you did it once and no one joined you. And you felt so awkward. You were like, amen. Shoot. Nobody, uh, all right, well, I guess not. Uh, we're not doing that here. And it's just the sheer weight of silence just crushed you, right? Because then the other two-thirds are like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Right, and here's the other thing about culture. I'm an amen ruiner in how I teach. Because here's what happened. I'm a rapid-fire guy, okay? So I'm just blasting all the time. If you want amens, you got to breathe. You know what I'm talking about? Is that amen, right? Because the minute you say amen, I'll talk right over you. So you can't even hear you like, amen. Wait, what do you say? You kept going there. I don't know what you were saying. I think I missed a point. I, Honey, did you write that down? You know, it's that kind of thing. I'm an amen ruiner because I talk so fast and my style doesn't allow for it. That's why the culture ends up getting set the way that it is. Yet what's so funny is I absolutely love Amen. I think the whole thing is cool because it means you're with me. It means that you're going, yeah, God, that's the way it should be. Uh, All that is awesome. My speaking style doesn't allow for it very well. So, amen. (laughs) Here's what, this is what's so funny about it, is everyone is just waiting for me to breathe anywhere just to shout amen. They're like, no, I didn't agree with you right now. I'm just saying that was like from 15 minutes ago. He just never gave me a shot, so I'm just, amen! 
You can store them up, right? But, but the point is, is any, whether you, you're amening in your heart or you're amening out loud, it, it, do you understand that we're all built different? And here's what I want to reaffirm for everybody. The posture ultimately doesn't matter in worship. Um, I'm, uh, I gesticulate, I move, I gesture like this all the time. It's not hard to go from this to this. If you don't do this all the time, and I don't know why everything has to be this big every time I'm talking. <laughs> but if, if you don't do this and you're not always flailing about, then it's hard to lift your hands in worship because that's not normal to you. As a matter of fact, if we all did it, and sometimes our worship leader wants to do something as a team, as a family, he knows that's stretching to you. So he's going to go, you guys, all right, let's all raise our hands in worship. Or when we pray, we'll say, stretch out your hands towards somebody. We know that there's a huge portion that are distracted the entire time because that's not how you do it, right? We get that. That's stretching time. That's doing something as a family that we're not all comfortable with. But so what? We grow a little bit in that time. But if every time you felt pressured to always have your hands up, you're not even focusing on the Lord because you're so worried about raising your hands. Here's what I want you to know. If you don't, it's all right. If you do, it's all right. That's great. What we want is hearts engaged with God and we want more abandoned, but we want more abandoned in the style of you. You understand what I mean? Amen. We want it in your style. God designed you in a very unique way. And so the way that I would love for you to display your love for Jesus is the way that you would display love anywhere. Here's what bothers me is inconsistency. If you are all fired up at a ball game or you're all fired up at a concert, but you can't get fired up for Jesus, I got a problem with that. You are not consistent. If you have other areas where you're very exuberant, but you cannot be that way with the Lord, what is the problem here? If you are very loving and kind towards other people, but you don't have those warm feelings for God, then we have a problem. But if you're consistent, like you're saying, listen, I'm a man of very few words, right? Let's say you're one of those guys. And, and, and you, you know, in a group, you never say anything. And when you do say something, everybody gets quiet. Because it's amazing that you said something and they're all hanging on your words. Let's say you're that guy. Do you understand that three words can mean everything to God? Those three words could be this. You're my everything. Let's say you only use three words. Let's say that was your whole prayer. You didn't have a long one. You didn't have, you weren't praying all night long. You had three words. You're my everything. That matters. That's a big deal. And it's valuable to God and it rises up in glory. The point is, although I think we all need to stretch, and that is kind of how Bridgeway is designed. We are designed to make you stretch. We're designed to make you uncomfortable. We are designed to constantly drive you forward. That's what we do. So if you go, man, it's always slightly uncomfortable in this church. I know we're doing that on purpose. As much as I think we should all grow and get out of our comfort zone, when it comes to connection points with God, please just be who you are. Just be how God made you without feeling guilt or weight for everybody else. I understand that we need to be aware of everyone around us, but we also need to be aware that our God is more important. 
right, than everyone around us. Amen. Amen. So when I talk about love and devotion and abandon all morning, I want you to insert how I'm built, how I'm unique in my style. All right. So that you're not hearing me push something that is very different than you. All right, so let's go ahead and throw up the first scriptures on the screen. Let me give you a little background on this and the fill in the blank. The fill in the blank is this. True love knows no bounds. True love knows no bounds, meaning in whatever style you're loving, in whatever groove God built you, you got to get abandoned. You got to get all in with Jesus, however that looks. But just know there's a certain degree where we got to get to a love point where we're not always counting the cost. You know what I mean? There's certain times, especially when there's deep moments with God where you're feeling super connected, you just got to release that and go all in, okay? Whatever that looks like. So let me give you the background on this story about Mary's anointing. Do you realize that all four Gospels tell an anointing story about a woman anointing Jesus in a house with a guy named Simon? But Matthew, Mark, and John are all talking about one incident. And Luke is talking about another. We've already in this series covered the Luke episode, but we did not cover this episode. Now, you would say, well, that's, there's no way in the world you're going to have two very similar incidents in houses of a guy named Simon that are not the same. Yes, you would, and here's why. First of all, Simon is a super common name. Second of all, according to the accounts... One occurred in the north of Israel, in the Galilee area. One occurred in the south of Israel, which is in Bethany. They're in completely separate sides of the nation. So the, clearly they're in different houses. One was in Simon the Pharisee's house. One was in Simon the leper's house. They're both called out to make sure you know they're different. One was anointing Jesus as a prostitute. One was anointing him as one of his closest friends, Mary. They're actually two separate incidents, all right? So we're going to be covering that other incident. This is one that's about seven days before Jesus dies. In our series, we've had to do some theme reshuffle, and we'll continue to do that, but we're trying to go somewhat chronologically. We are heading in towards the last days of Jesus, which John talks a lot about. So we still have a lot of material, but we're in the final week of Christ's life, all right? Here's where it begins. It says six days before the Passover. That's the big festival. That's the let's all travel to Jerusalem festival. That is the big one in the nation of Israel. And this is going to be Jesus's last Passover on earth. All right. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to the southern town by Jerusalem called Bethany. He had been temporarily staying in a town called Ephraim. And now this is the Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Y'all remember that story, right? That's kind of hard to forget. And while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, they gave a dinner for him there. A dinner for who? I don't know. It's either Lazarus or Jesus. Because depending on whose account you read, it kind of indicates the other guy. Um, I'm going to tell you this. Even if it was a, yay, Lazarus, you're back from the dead. Which, by the way, does anyone ever consider Lazarus's attitude towards being raised from the dead is there any degree where they take off the grave clothes and everyone's clapping for him and he's like Jesus <laughs> we're gonna talk about this later right like you took me from where I'm back here with you yahoos are you kidding me 
what are you doing, man? I thought we were friends, right? I mean, I, I can guarantee you here is not as cool as there, all right? So the fact that he's back here was probably a little irritating. Well, sure enough, it says that they're having a dinner, and it could be a yay Lazarus is alive, or it could be a yay Jesus for making Lazarus alive, or it could just be a yay Jesus banquet. We have no idea. And Martha served. Now, remember, the best friends of Jesus down there were Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Martha's serving. That's her act of worship. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. So where was Mary? She's going to come into the story here in a moment, but let's just find a little bit of background on this stuff. This is miracle territory. This is where also Jesus was wanted. The, the bad guys from Jerusalem wanted to kill him. This is a very dangerous dinner to go to. He's coming back into a spot where the bad guys are while at the same time walking into a small village where he had just raised a man from the dead who's sitting at the table. That's craziness. So you have all this emotion flying through the air, and it's super intense. All right? The other thing is, who's Simon the leper? Well, we don't know. What's weird is Martha's serving at his house. Why wouldn't Simon's wife serve at his house? Is it Martha's house? Is she married to Simon? No, probably not. Is he a single guy where the village kind of comes together and the women come in and serve because it was their buddy and he was just hosting it? We don't know. Here's a couple things we do know. He's not a leper anymore. How do we know that? Because you can't go to dinner at a leper's house and lepers aren't allowed to have houses. There you go. So there's no such thing as a leper's house in town because that's not allowed. So he's not a leper anymore. Why in the world is everyone calling him by his former disease? Do you, you know, if you're a cancer survivor, do you want to be Bob Cancer? Is that what you want to be? And he's like, hey, man, I let that thing go. I'm moving on. I'm not interested in that. All right. What are we supposed to do with this? If he's not a leper anymore, what happened? Somehow he was healed. Who is the healer in the room? Well, it's obviously Jesus. So is it likely this guy was healed by Jesus? Probably. We know that the early church must have known who he was because they were referring to him almost like a title. Hey, you guys all remember Simon the leper? You're like, oh, yeah, 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 I remember that dude. Super good at cards. You know, something like that. You don't know. But they all knew him. And not only that, the other guy was Simon the Pharisee. So let's clarify, this is Simon the leper. Okay, we have a different incident in a different town. That's cool. But here's what I think is so beautiful about that phrase. That phrase that was the bane of his existence doesn't hold any more pain. You understand what I'm talking about? When Jesus gets done with your full redemption, your past doesn't hurt anymore. That which once marked you and made the world dark is now worn as a badge of honor. Fifty years free of this. 50 years free of that. Do you see what I'm saying? Is that literally he doesn't feel bad about being known as a leper anymore because he's not that. And not only is he not that, but whenever somebody mentions it, it highlights the transformation in Jesus. I was uh, getting my hair cut the other day, clearly. And, uh, and I was talking to the gal who, who does that. And I was telling her a story about a close friend of mine here at this church, um, a super good buddy of mine. And I was telling her just for fun, 
the story of what he used to be. Criminal. Straight up criminal. Leader of the church. Like two different things. And I was having so much fun and joy describing what he used to be because you can't ever see that in him anymore. I mean, there's not... I use this phrase a lot. There wasn't even smoke on his clothes. And here's what I mean. You remember the Hebrew boys went through the fiery furnace? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walk into a fiery furnace. Not only are their clothes not burned, it says there wasn't even the smell of smoke on them. They were so protected and cleansed, there was no memory of the incident. In the same way, I'm like, this guy, you would never, ever, ever know. I mean, he is like good guy through and through. And you're like, oh, he's never a criminal. Yeah, he was. That's the power of Jesus. Jesus cleanses so powerfully. So here you have this guy going, go ahead, call me leper. That's great because I'll tell you the story. Man, I used to be outcast. I used to be just messed up. I used to be on the edge of wanting to commit suicide every day. You know what? I'm not that guy anymore. And you're like, you were? And you can't believe it. That's the power of God. Right? Amen. Last thing that I'll highlight for you is what it means to recline at table. It's going to say that a lot. Um, the way that they would do banquets was probably slightly different than how they did everyday meals. How they did everyday meals probably differed from family to family. But they would have little tables that are super low to the ground, you know, let's say six inches off the ground. And what you would do is they'd spread out a bunch of cushions, and it was all to hang out. Everything was designed to hang out together and spend time together. And they didn't have tall tables. And the reason why this is important to know is if you're familiar with the story, you keep going, so Mary anointed his feet. Did she crawl under the table? No, she didn't crawl under the table. There was no tall table. They're not sitting in chairs. They're all laying down. So the way that you would lay down is you'd grab a cushion, hang on to it, and you'd lean on your left elbow so you had your right hand free to pick out the food, grab your drink, laugh and joke with everybody around you. But everyone's heads were towards the table and their feet were like spokes or a fan outward, okay? So everyone could hear one another. Now what that does, it allows your full body to be exposed, and your feet are way back out here. That way, Mary can have access both to Jesus' anointing of his head and the anointing of his feet without having to crawl under a table. All right, good. Let's keep moving forward. It says this. As he was reclining at table, here she comes. This is the third of the crew. Mary came up to him with an alabaster flask. Alabaster is mined in Egypt. It is a soft marble. It was carved out and used as containers for liquids because it didn't absorb all the liquid. If you put it in a leather bag, it's going to absorb it. So it was good for perfumes and ointments and whatever. It was super expensive. You don't import something from Egypt. You don't bring in something that's super pretty uh, without it costing a whole bunch. So right now we know that whatever she's holding in her hand is expensive because the container is expensive. The common way they looked was that they would be kind of like a bulb at the bottom and go into a slender neck up towards the top, almost like a zucchini type looking thing. All right. And these little containers, some people would keep a bunch around their house as investments. You're going to find out they're very expensive, but you could hold a bunch of them in a very small area. They weren't very big. In that day, it was very common for ladies to wear perfumed vials around their neck. That's kind of like their jewelry. 
hey, I got an expensive bit of perfume. I can kind of put a couple drops on, right? And kind of go out to dinner, whatever it was. But that was kind of their sign of beauty and wealth. So, but you wouldn't have one this big around your neck. All right. This is a different kind. This is a bottle of it. So she comes with an alabaster, alabaster flask of a pound of very expensive perfumed ointment. Now, the pound mentioned here is actually closer to a pint, closer to 12 ounces, not 16 ounces. All right. That's still a lot. That's it, it contains quite a bit. All right. Whatever you think of 12 ounces, that's a good amount of stuff. All right. It's very costly and it was made from pure spikenard, which is from northern India. So that's another imported item and it's pulled from roots and stems of a certain type of plant so if you have to extract something and it's kind of a rare plant and you have to import it from far away are we all getting the understanding of why it's so expensive okay this is not a jewish style anointing oil this is roman style okay so it's a little bit different here it was very costly it says again and she broke the flask. Now, either she broke the seal or she broke the neck. If you break the seal, you could probably use it again, I would imagine. And there's some question as to what she did here. If she broke the neck, you better use it all right now. Okay? So somehow she broke something on the vial and poured it over Jesus's head as he reclined at table and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. No kidding. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume, 12 ounces of super smelly perfume. When you dump that on anyone, it's going to fill the house, right? Okay. So let's talk about this for a moment. You're about to find out that this perfume was so expensive that it's worth 300 denarii. Denarii one is worth a day's wage. Let's say, for example, there's 365 days in a year, but they don't get paid for Sabbath. They don't get paid for holy days. So you're going to now cut all that back and you go, let's say that they work 300 days a year. A whole year's wages. Let's say we took all of our year's wages and averaged them out. Let's say we came to 40 grand. All right. Let's say 40 grand was the average yearly salary in this place. This is a $40,000 bottle of perfume. That's expensive. I don't care how rich you are. That's weird because you're like, dang, that's a super expensive bottle. Do you understand why they kept them as investments? If you could have a whole bunch of $40,000 or $50,000 bottles, that's where the wealthy could put them there and they could sell them on the market anytime they wanted and they would just keep them for a long time because they stayed around in good condition. Where did she get something like that? There's some indicator that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus as a family came from wealth. Uh, for example, the tomb Lazarus was laid into, that was a rich man's tomb. So, but still... This is maybe this was the most expensive thing she owned. Uh, maybe it wasn't, but it was really expensive. Some of us don't even have car, much less cars that are 40 grand. You understand what I'm saying? 
So this is super expensive. And she has no concern about breaking it open and pouring it all over Jesus. Huh, well, that's kind of weird. What's the anointing process like? If you were super rich and somebody came into your house and you had something like this, you would take a couple drops and drop it on their head so they'd smell good all night. Because it would pour into their hair and then later on they could kind of wash their hair. But in general, it just makes the whole house smell good. And you were putting something expensive on them. A few drops was all it took. She pours the entire bottle, right, all over him. And everyone's like, oh, hey, whoa, geez, you smell like a girl. Right? And then... After she pours it on his head, she's pouring it on her feet. So doot, 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 she scoots from the close to the table all the way over to the back of the table. And she's pouring it all over his feet. And now she starts wiping it with her hair. Why are you wiping it off? That's 40 grand, <laughs> right? Well, she's wiping off the excess. You don't want all this goopy stuff all over you. You're trying to wipe that off. Because otherwise, everyone's slipping on the tile as they walk by, right? And it's everywhere in the house and fills the whole place. I mean, it's just a practical matter. But why with her hair? Okay, we all have to be very clear on how many taboos she's breaking through right now. First of all, women don't hang out with men like this. Women don't touch rabbis. Women don't untake their hair. Women do not wipe the feet of another man. I mean, pretty much everything she's doing is against society. She's violating every taboo. Why? Her love compelled her to. And she didn't care what other people thought. All right. The way that it works with a hair thing, and I don't know if Mary was married. I don't, I don't know that. Uh, there's no indicator that she was. Um, so this may be a little bit different for her, but the way that it would work in the ancient world is that when a young lady, and let's say she'd get married around, I don't know, anywhere from 13 to 16, when she gets married, she binds up her hair and never again in her entire life does she have her hair down in front of any other man. That's the way that it works. The only one that's allowed to see her hair down is her husband. Mary has her hair down. She's wiping it all over the place. You know how uncomfortable this room just got? All the guys are like, whoa, I don't know. Am I supposed to be looking? I don't know what's happening here. I'm looking away. I, there's all this perfume. I'm uncomfortable. Why is she touching him? What? This is weird and creepy. What? Because if you were an equal or a superior, you could anoint someone's head. Only slaves touch their feet. So she went from an anointing process to a slave process. And didn't seem to skip a beat. And she is taking all the stuff off with her hair unkept. So anyway, you just have to understand the intensity of all of this. All right, so let me ask the final question on that piece. Why'd she do it? Now we go, love. Yes, love. You're absolutely right. But here's my point. Was it in thanks for raising her brother back to life? Is that what it was? Was it for the party reason? Was it just hardcore devotion that saw an opportunity? Was it knowing that the Lord might go away soon? What was her motivation? Why didn't she do it last Thursday? Why this time? We don't know. All we know is that her devotion was so extreme, she grabbed probably the most expensive thing she had and wasted it on Jesus. When the disciples saw it, let's go to the next passage. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant. That word in Greek means expressing violent displeasure. 
What does that sound like? Oh, come on. That's actually what it sounds like. Uh, Hopefully that scared some of you. The idea is that right when she does it, she's in worship mode. And boom, they explode on her. Oh, woman, what are you doing? Right? And they're all grumbling and complaining and they're all being loud and they're all angry at her. That's not what you want when you're trying to worship, where everyone's judging you, everyone's mad at you, and it's completely killing your mojo. Right? You're like, I'm trying to be with Jesus here. Y'all be quiet. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying to themselves, Why was this ointment wasted like this? This ointment could have been sold for a large sum, more than 300 denarii, and given to the poor. Uh, It was Passover time. Passover time, religious people gave to the poor. Um, We'll talk about that in a moment. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray Jesus, scolded her aloud, saying aloud, Yeah, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He's the only one that vocalized it super loud. All the other guys felt it and were grumbling and making sounds. He's the one that clarified it. But he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag as treasurer of the team, he used to help himself to what was put into it. This stuff turns my stomach. Don't use God as a cover for your sin. Don't pretend to be religious. I'm not saying that you can't be inconsistent. We're all inconsistent. I'm inconsistent. I'm teaching you things I'm not doing in my life. You understand that? Because if I only taught you what I got nailed down, we'd have much shorter services. Okay, so the consistency level is not always there. But what I mean is... This guy wanted to rip Jesus off, but he shouts out a religious phrase to try to throw off the scent. That's despicable. Don't do that. If you want to be despicable, just be despicable. Don't throw Jesus into the mix. Don't cover with him. That's messed up. All right. And then we talk about this idea of why were the disciples so mad? Well, this is, this is where you got to give them credit because Here's what I would have done if I was there and I see her throw 40 grand down the drain. I would have went, oh, come on, Mary. What are you doing? I know you love Jesus. Send him an e-card, right? It's just cheaper. What are you doing? You don't have to do that. You could have wasted your money on something else. That's actually what I would have said. Why? Because I would have thought of something that was more valuable in my mind and still didn't matter. Right? I mean, we would all have a hierarchy of what it should have been spent on, yet probably none of it was good. None of it was lasting. None of it was for Jesus. It was just what you thought was important. But notice, this is where you give the disciples credit. What ticked them off was that they saw an opportunity to love on people that didn't have anything. That's cool. I don't ever hear that from anyone about, man, why would we do this when we could just give to the poor? I don't hear that. I only hear it from one group in my circle of influence, and that's people that come back from mission trips. When people come back from mission trips, especially when they are in the poorest of areas, let's say you're hanging out in the dump, let's say you're hanging in a slum town, let's say that you're hanging out in the shanty area, and you see what they are scraping to put together When you come back to America, it'll mess with your head because 
you can't handle the waste. You literally walk by trash cans and go, there is more right there than I saw them eat. And it's very unsettling to you. So there's a lot of people that have culture shock coming back. That's the crew that I see this, where they're actually angry. They get really frustrated and angry at the waste of American culture. Let me also reset you on this. Do you realize every culture wastes? We just happen to waste money. Okay, so we, yes, we are wasteful, but every culture is wasteful. It's not like just because they're poor, they're all pure and holy. No, the whole point is they waste too, just in different ways. We waste money. We waste resources a lot. And some people that's really hard on to the disciples are going, man, we are out there every day seeing people that are barely getting by. So when I see my buddy drop 40 grand down the drain, it's really weird for me. Okay, that's what you're seeing. All right, here we go. But Jesus, look at the next phrase, but Jesus, I want you to realize that sometimes the church says one thing and Jesus says another. The church said, I can't believe you did that. You wasted it. And what do I mean by the church? I mean, the majority of all the guys in the room, they're the rest of the church. Jesus is the only one that's thinking the other way. So the majority of the church said, how dare you waste this? But Jesus had another idea. Who are you more interested in pleasing? Jesus or the church better be Jesus But Jesus aware of the scolding said to them leave her alone That's defensive Jesus. I love that Leave her alone. Why do you trouble this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me In greek, that's a word that's used not just for a good morally good thing, but something that's exquisite and beautiful He's like man. She's she's awesome you will always have the poor with you and whatever you want you can do good for them That's a loose quote from deuteronomy fifteen eleven. But you will not always have me Guys, this is a limited time only opportunity. I'm about to die in six seven days And i'm out you have no access to me She doesn't know that But you don't understand the bigger picture You don't even know what the reality is what she has done is awesome and i'm about to leave and she wanted to spend her stuff on me and that's okay Not only is it okay. It's great. She has done what she could in pouring this ointment on my body She has anointed my body beforehand to prepare me for burial And this is where it gets weird. She may keep The rest for the day of my burial Let's pause right there This is why I said it. it's really hard to figure out what she broke because if you read Matthew and Mark, it sounds like she broke the neck of the bottle and had to use it all. But when John records it, he says, she may keep it for the day of my burial. What in the world does that mean? What are you keeping? Okay, here's where scholars see attention and they can't figure out what it means. Some people try to stretch it into saying this. She had kept this for my day to day to anoint me. That's actually not what the Greek says. That's not the tense. So you're stretching. It could mean let her keep the memory of this through to the day of my burial, meaning stop wrecking her worship time. She's trying to have time with me and you're all making it negative. Don't wreck it. Leave her alone. Maybe it means that. Okay, it could mean that. It's a little bit of a stretch, but it could mean that. So the way that I compiled them and shoved them together was to allow the tension to remain I don't know what it means to keep the rest of it. 
I, I don't understand what that means. However, I believe personally she broke the flask and used it all. And that I do think it, it would have to be something like the memory that he, she would hang on to. But let's finish this out. He said, now listen up, this is deep. Wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world. Oops, how far has the gospel gone so far in this story? Uh, around the nation, not around the world. Look at Jesus' foresight. He's like, no, it's going around the world. The disciples may not have even heard that. It's going to go around the entire world. And what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Isn't this just like Jesus' nature? It's the focus is supposed to be on him, and he turns it around and honors somebody else. For example, while he's being nailed to the cross, he says what? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He starts interceding for the people nailing him there. That's a trip. And then whenever it comes down to uh, Jesus, you're all, and he starts redirecting attention and loving on other people. Right here, he said, wherever the gospel is going to go out, I want you guys to tell her story. Now, why her story? Was it just to honor her? Maybe, but it's a perfect fit. Here's why. I believe that if you tell the gospel the good news, people are going to want to know what it looks like when it's complete. Tell her story. Here's a woman that because of what Jesus has done would give all to honor and glorify him. That's why they match together so well. Okay, so when we close out, I want to talk about this idea of being foolish for Jesus. Because that's what she just did. She just did something stupid for Jesus. She could have calculated it out and figured it out and done this a better way. She could have gave Jesus $1,000 worth of perfume. That would have been super sweet. Everyone would have went, oh, why did you waste so much? And then took the other 39 grand and done a bunch of other things in his name. But she didn't. Why? Because that was a moment that she had to be all in and she didn't count the cost. Are you having any of those? Because a lot of us get so calculated. We'll go, well, I'm going to think about that. And then you never do it. You just take it home and you just rethink it to death. There are certain moments where the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Maybe it's in worship and, and the Lord is going, hey, hey, I want you to get out of your seat and I want you to go up and I want you to kneel at the altar. Lord, there's no way I'm doing that. We don't do that very often here. Well, I didn't ask you what your culture was. What I asked you was, do it. And then you think about it so long, okay, Lord, maybe I'll do it if the next song is, okay? Okay, you're, you just thought it to death. You're not going to do it, and then you go home with regret. This woman has no regret. She could have went home and went, man, I knew I should have grabbed that bottle. I knew I should have. She got up out of the meal, maybe went across the street, got it out of her house, came back, and absolutely anointed the Lord and blew 40 grand. That's amazing. Now, I'm not saying we should all just be foolish and not think about anything we're doing. I don't think that's wise. That's not biblical. However, what I am saying is we need a lot more abandon. We need a lot more all in. We need a lot more response to God. We need a lot less resistance in our spirits. 
But when someone is foolish before God and they're in a corporate setting like that or like this, there's two different things going on. There's their experience and there's everyone else's experience. Let's look at them both real quick. If it is you and God calls you to do something foolish, if you out of just your sheer love and devotion want to do something foolish for him, I need you to consider two things. Number one, yay for you. Let's go in with Jesus. Let's be into him. And to some degree, you need to not worry as much about what we think of you. However, there is also another caveat. Make sure it's about Jesus and not about you. Because if you do something for you and you hijack my worship time, we're going to have a problem. If you do something for Jesus and hijack my worship time, we're all good. You understand? Because that's between you and the master, and maybe I needed to be bumped out of my comfort zone, right? Because that's the other thing is that we're always worried. You do want to realize you're in a group setting. This is not where you go, man, I'm so into Jesus. I just want to start shooting guns everywhere. Woo! Okay. Yeah, you're killing people. Please don't do that. I don't know anybody's here. Woo! You're shooting people. Okay, please don't do that. There's a little bit of wisdom that needs to be involved. You're in a group. It's not just you. All right? I feel like mosh pit for the Lord. Woo! Just start knocking people over. Okay, don't do that. Realize you're in a group. However, I want you all in. I'd rather have you err on that side than the other side. You understand? Okay, now what about the group that's watching? What about all the rest of us? If we are spectators and somebody is being foolish for the Lord, watch your judgment. You don't know what's going on. Be very careful with that. I understand that they're doing something that is distracting to you. Maybe you need to be distracted, right? Because maybe your maturity isn't at a level where you can handle anything in your environment, right? Well, that's not good. So be careful of assuming things about why they're doing it. Don't put your garbage on them, right? You're like, oh, they're just doing that for show. How do you know that? Let me give you an example. And I've shared this before. There are times when I will go to the altar in worship and I will throw my hands up to God and I will fall on my knees and I will just go for it in worship. And everyone, oh, look at that pastor so in with Jesus. And man, he just loves him. And, and I wish someday I'm going to be like that. Do you know why I'm doing it? Because I feel dry as a bone. And I got nothing. So I have to change my posture. I have to change my groove. I have to get into the moment. And I have to go, God, I'm not giving you anything at this time. So I've got to change up something. And so that is my way of trying to kickstart me from dryness into worship. So be very careful on assuming that you know what's going on. You don't know what's going on. And when someone else is maybe dancing before the Lord in worship and they're excited about it, can you let them have joy as opposed to you wrecking it? I'm telling you, and I've shared this with you many times. Have you ever watched a child worship? Have you ever seen the little guys, six-year-olds, hands up, and they're just like, ah, they're all into it? Now, half of it is they think the song is cool. Do you think we're any better? Maybe the song just moved you, and you thought, oh, I love this part. Okay, but you are still in with your Jesus. All I'm saying is that when you do it, just make sure it's all about Jesus, and it's not about you. And then the rest of us will make sure that we are not importing our garbage on you and judging you. Because that's not fair. 
I'm going to close with this quote by Warren Wearsby. I thought it was pretty powerful. He said this. We see how a person's view can be warped. Judas had just seen an action of surpassing loveliness, but he called it extravagant waste. He was an embittered man, and he took an embittered view of things. Our sight depends on what is inside us. We see only what we are fit and able to see. If we like the person, that person can do little wrong. But if we dislike them, we'll interpret the finest action. A warped mind brings a warped view of things. And if we find ourselves becoming very critical of others and imputing unworthy motives to them, we should for a moment stop examining them and start examining ourselves. Here's the problem. When you see someone do something extreme for the Lord, you go, oh, they're doing it for show. No, you would do it for a show. Not them. Stop putting your garbage on them. Yes, if you did it, it would be wrong motives. You're absolutely correct. But they're not you. Are some of the things wrong motives? Of course. We're humans. Is some stuff done out of the flesh? Of course it is. We're flesh. That doesn't make it all bad. What I'm saying is, I would rather try to adjust and clean up a little bit of mess and go, hey, brother, whoa, 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 what are you doing? Okay, that was totally weird. Rather than deal with apathy. You understand what I mean? So here's my whole point. Whatever it looks like for you in your personality to be in love and abandoned with Jesus, we need a lot more of that. It doesn't have to look like anybody else. It doesn't have to match everyone around you. Just be you. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you. Heavenly Father, you are great and you are glorious. And we love you and we think it's exciting to be in your presence. We think it's exciting to be with our brothers and sisters around us glorifying you. So may everything in our heart, Lord, be glorifying to you. May we praise you in the way that we talk, in the way that we think, in the way that we act. And Lord Jesus, keep taking us further and deeper and deeper. And and Holy Spirit, if you want to just move on us at some point in the services or in worship and you want us to be excited about you then lord we want to follow that we want to chase after you if we're at our homes and you come upon us we're going to respond so lord would you just show us what you desire and we'll run after that in jesus name we pray amen have a wonderful week and we'll see you next time